I think I've mentioned it before, but sometimes when I'm hanging out here in the neighborhood, I'll overhear something. It might be out of context or might be something somebody said to me. But if it's funny or interesting, I'll go ahead and write it down. And then later I'll share it on maybe the Twitters and uh, tell people about it. But I was out the other day and I was just kind of daydreaming as I was sitting there at the bar. And I dr- daydream a lot sometimes. I just drift off. And as I came back in, I overheard someone say, music was a lot better back when ugly people were allowed to make it. Hi friends, this is Otis Gibbs and you're listening to Thanks for Giving a Damn. I'm sitting here in my living room in East Nashville. This is a personal journal. This is a bit of an experiment. I like to say right up front that I haven't the slightest idea what I'm doing, but I decided to do it anyway. And this show was founded with the idea that there are only two people in art that matter. There's the creative individual and the person experiencing it. And everything else is an artificial filter. This is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. My guest this week is Chuck Mead. Chuck is a singer and a songwriter, and he lives right here in East Nashville. You can find out everything you need to know about Chuck at chuckmead.com. I've known Chuck for quite a while now, and he was one of the first people I contacted when I decided I wanted to do this show. And he was eager to jump in, and he ended up being... I don't know, on our fourth or fifth episode. And we had a really good response from that. But Chuck's just one of those guys that has a ton of great stories. He's been fortunate enough to to be in a lot of rooms where some fun things were happening and got to experience a lot of great things. And he's a great storyteller who can share those things. And he's also a wealth of knowledge about country music history or stuff that happened here around Nashville. So I was happy to have him back on and I hope you guys enjoy this as much as I did. There's Chuck Mead. There's a Bigfoot Museum just above Santa Cruz in Felton, California. Is it Felton? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, we and we had to go. I, I'm a believer. <laughs> I mean, I have I haven't not seen him. Can you prove that it doesn't exist? It, yeah. So there you go. This guy behind the counter was a total. He he had a sighting. And uh, yeah, we talked to him. I mean, when you when you pass up a place that says Bigfoot Museum. I mean, you pretty much got to pull over, and it was convenient anyway. And we spent some time there. It's California, so then we started looking for him. We didn't ever see Bigfoot, not the whole drive. Were the people at the museum just true believers? The, the person at the museum was <laughs> not was a lot a, of staff. Was a true believer? No, no, he's staff of one. There's a lot of good trinkets, a lot of good, you know, little sculptures and postcards. I don't, I don't think, I think Marty bought some stuff, but I, I think I might've got a postcard or something and sent it to somebody. Well, didn't I see pictures of you guys in Roswell? Oh yeah. We went to Roswell too. Went to the UFO museum. It's, they don't have any UFOs there. They have models and, you know, they don't have actual debris or anything, but they have recreations of it all. And it was great. Of course you gotta, if you're, if you're going through or near Roswell, I mean, 
If I was within 200 miles of there, I would go out of the way to go to Roswell. It's, it's just as good as the Grand Canyon in a different way. <laughs> I have, though, seen a UFO. Oh, it's a true story. I haven't told you this story. It's Actually, I'm not trying to tie it in and be a shameless plugger, but there is a song about it on my new record. I, I was a pizza delivery driver uh, because it's always easy to get off work for gigs when you're a pizza delivery driver. And um, we, were, we had band rehearsal in the afternoon, and we were playing, and there was a little LSD around, and I put a little on my tongue, and... I was just starting to get off when I realized that I had to drive pizzas around for two hours between six and eight to help with the Saturday rush. And so I, I hurry and take a shower, which of course is that's where I started to get off. And things started swirling around. It was starting to get fun. I was starting to laugh. And I had to leave all my friends that were in the same frame of mind as me and go into this chaotic pizza delivery Saturday night they had a restaurant inside too. So I went down to work and I walked up to my boss who was leaving. <laughs> I might add, he was, he had worked that day and he was leaving. And I said, Hey, Chris, I lied to him. I said, someone at rehearsal today, someone put a tab of acid in my drink. And so I'm, I'm really starting to get off right now. And he kind of chuckled cause he was an old hippie from the old days. And he said, do you think you can drive? And I said, yes. And he goes, have fun. <laughs> and of course, he was leaving, so he didn't have to deal with a madman who, you know, you start thinking, okay, I got to take this box up to this guy and get $750 for it. This doesn't make sense. I drove around that night, but I would always go, all my pieces were on time, by the way. It just was a better drive on the way there. And I was picking up, I, I picked up people from my house that were in the same frame of mind as me. Because I needed company. I needed somebody I could talk to because I was just screaming at myself when I was by myself. So the very last run of the night, I still had the pizza vehicle and I loaded up a couple of my friends and we decided we need to, we need to mellow out and uh, smoke a joint, drive over Clinton Lake. That's what we'll do. So we drove over the dam at Clinton Lake and we came around this corner and we stopped at this place where there used to be a dirt road and there was another sort of uh, perpendicular dirt road in front of us. And we saw a sheriff's car. We're like, you know, a little panicky. But then all of a sudden there was like this thing in the sky hovering over the lake. And this was not drug-induced. It, it, it was not a common shared LSD Ken Kesey moment where we all made that thing happen. It, it was literally in the sky. And it was like classic what you ever hear, you know, everybody that ever saw a flying saucer described it sort of cigar shaped sort of green glowy making no sound at all and just drawing all your attention to it it kind of hovered a little bit and floated over you know probably you know 10 or 15 degrees in front of us and then shot faster than anything i've ever seen in my life south boom it just shot really fast and i know that it was real because the sheriff guy saw it too and like started busting ass down the road like he was going to chase the ufo you know <laughs> and we get back we we go back home and we're all like oh wow did we really see that was that oh that was incredible that was you know and so one of my friends of course calls up the sheriff's department 
Uh, yeah, one of your boys see uh, some unidentified, unidentified flying object uh, out by Clinton Lake. Any of your boys out there see anything like that? <laughs> They're like, um, what is your name? <laughs> Click. <laughs> <laughs> but I did see it and come to find out later uh, from other friends around that same time period. And this was in the 80s. had to be like, what was it, 84 we talked to I talked to some of my friends later on, and they had seen weird stuff around that same time period. Like they were in downtown Lawrence, and you know, get out of a car and going to walk and seeing this thing in the sky, and they're like, and they're not on heavy drugs. And do you see that? And are, are you guys seeing that too? You know, and it just kind of vaporizes and goes does the same sort of thing in the middle of the day. So I feel like I really did see that. I'm not lying. Steve Jordan, the great drummer from New York, probably, you know, Levon called him the best drummer in New York City. And he is. He's great. I love Steve Jordan. He called us up because we had done a, another big benefit out in California. He called us up to be involved in this Rainforest benefit at the Beacon Theater. And this was 2000, 2000. Yeah, I think it was 2000. And, you know, the artists on it were like Dr. John, Levon was there, Keith Richards, Odetta, um, Clarence Gatemouth Brown, who stole the show, frankly. Um, he was badass, holding court back there with his pipe half full of tobacco and, re and the other half was reefer and just telling it the way it was. It was a beautiful thing to watch. Um, who else? Jackson Brown was on the show and Keb Moe. And the Memphis Horns, Kim Wilson from the Fabulous Thunderbirds. You know, it was just a big rainforest benefit. And we did rehearsals at SIR, you know, and it was it was fantastic. And, you know, uh, we got to be hanging out with Levon. And we ended up, you know, misbehaving in a hotel room late at night <laughs> with Levon. Because, you know, he, he recognized us immediately as hillbillies <laughs> and, and felt comfortable and we just listened to blues music and you know what have you kim was up there too it was the the security came maybe three or four times because the music was loud and we were all just raging but um we we were doing our little thing at sir and and uh you know going through amps because we had to play back line and just trying to figure everything out and and keith walks in and <clears throat> he sees donnie over there playing the straight steel and he's like, oh, I, I've got to have that. So Donnie ended up playing happy with, with Keith that night. Um, and, of course, Donnie had never – he wasn't familiar with the song at all. That's not part of his vocabulary. He's a fiddle player. There's no fiddle music except for maybe two songs in the Rolling Stones. So we had to go over to, to uh, Tower Records in New York and buy a copy of Exile on Main Street so he could learn happy, so he could do that lick. And um, – yeah, so we got to we got to be hanging out with Keith, and he was he was really pretty gracious and cool, you know, hanging out. <laughs> it was really pretty great. I went it, went down to his uh, dressing room, and I'm and I'm like, "Hey, Keith, can I bum a smoke off of you?" <laughs> and he's like, "Yeah, sure." And I said, "Yeah, I'm trying to quit, but I'm weak." And he goes, "Oh, really? I'm a Fortnite. Take two. Put one behind your ear." <laughs> So Jay and I smoked one because it was Keith Richards' cigarette, and I kept one, and I got it in my dresser drawer. <laughs> I have a little museum of stuff, and that's one of the things, a, a, a cigarette I bummed off of Keith Richards. 
I'm going to have to be seeing that museum before I'm out of here. Oh, yeah. I got some cool stuff in it. I got an original board from the original stage of the Ryman. I got a cigarette that I smoked with Carl Smith. That's in, that, you got to keep that. I got a little bag of uh, ash from Mount St. Helens that Gary Bennett gave me from the eruption of Mount St. Helens. Uh, I got Dee Dee Ramone's bass somebody gave me. and I Really? Yeah. How did you get Which that? Was, well, there's there's this woman, a friend of ours named Natalie, and she lives over on, she lives in the Washington, D.C., Baltimore area. But she used to live in New York back in the day and was at CBGB's all the time. And, in fact, sublet an apartment to Dee Dee and a couple other ne'er-do-wells at one point. And because he didn't have any rent money, he gave her a base one time. <laughs> for some sort of collateral. So I have like a a letter of authenticity from her and she gave me Didi Ramon's bass. So that's part of my museum. Yeah, it's not bad. It's building. It's not Marty Stewart, but it's building. We met years ago at the old Country Music Hall of Fame. They were putting in a Hank Williams exhibit. And one of the artifacts in the exhibit that wasn't owned by Marty Stewart <laughs> um, was Hank's old Packard that they drove around in. And so we helped push that into the museum. We were all happy that we got asked to do that. And when we were, while we were there, we met Don Helms, who was drifting cowboy steel player, the original steel player and Jerry rivers, who was the fiddle player. And those guys had been big buddies for, you know, 55, 60 years by that time, you know, and Don is hilarious, and he was always saying how he had to wait on Jerry for years, like wait, you know, because there's always one guy in the band you got to wait on. And I guess Jerry was that guy, and he was he was always saying, "Yeah, out of the fifty years I've been in show business, I probably waited twenty on Jerry." <laughs> and and at at that time, we went downstairs to the video place. Uh, Alan Stoker took us down to. Uh, to the video archives and he showed all of us the there was only a certain amount of known footage of Hank Williams at the Kate Smith doing the Kate Smith show of singing hey good looking and so they Jerry said Jerry wasn't on the show that time for some reason they had somebody else playing you know because it was the Grand Ole Opry cast that went and did the Kate Smith show in New York and um so they Jerry said, I know I did one of those shows, but I'm not in it. So they, they couldn't find the footage. They couldn't. And finally, they just went to the Kate Smith estate who had all those shows on video and they found the show he was on and it was stellar footage of him doing Cold, Cold Heart. And um, they were going to cut Anita Carter's song for one of his songs so he could do because he was the biggest thing at the time. You know, Acuff, of course, was leading the proceedings because he's Roy Acuff. And Hank did, felt bad about them cutting her song. So he said, why don't you sing with me on I Can't Help It If I'm Still In Love With You? And if you've ever seen that footage, it's like one of the most incredible things you'll ever see in your life. It's like, I wish that he would have done some more duets with, with Anita Carter because she has a voice like an angel. But anyway, this is the first time that they had seen it since they'd done the show in 1951. And we were sitting in the room with them. And, and so we got to be good friends with Don and and Jerry. And over the years, you know, we, we stayed in touch. Over the, and, and a couple of years later, we uh, won Best Country Music 
record of the year in the Nashville Music Awards. And that was, they had it at the Ryman and, you know, did musical performances. So we performed on that. We did half as much by Hank Williams and we had Don Helms sit in with us. And we took pictures with him and everything. And, and it was the first time that he'd pulled out his straight steel, you know, because he went to pedals years ago. It was the first time he'd pulled that thing out from underneath his bed. And he played it from then on, he told us. He said, I don't play anything else but this now since, since I played it with you guys. And, you know, we've, we, we were like, you know, they were taking pictures of us because we won, you know, the best band or whatever. You know, we won our award and we had Don in our band. It was and I'd like to find those pictures. I don't know who was taking them that night, but I'd love to find those pictures because he's like, I'm ready to go on the road with you guys. And you know, I've been on the road since they come out with it. <laughs> that was his That was his quote. And Don was great. And then <clears throat> a few years later, we were supposed to do something at the new Hall of Fame for Hatch Showprint. And we had scheduled to make an appearance in the Ford Theater, you know, it was BR. And it was during some downtime that we had. And, and sometimes when we would come off the road for a few weeks, Donnie would go out and play with Shelton, with Hank, Hank the Third. He'd go out and play fiddle with him just because, you know, he wants to play and make a little money and play with Shelton. You know, it was great. Well, somehow it got overlapped. Like, he, he was out on the road with Shelton when we were supposed to do this thing at the Hall of Fame. It's like, well, what are we going to do? So we called up Don Helms. So that was, was a weird juxtaposition because we had Don sitting in for Don Heron, who was Hank Williams' steel player, and Don was Donnie was playing with Hank Williams the third out on the road. <laughs> it was just kind of a strange, I don't know what you call it. But, you know, it's a groovy story, right? <laughs> and he did great. I went up to Hendersonville and picked him up and took him to the gig and he and his wife and took him back. Yeah, he was a great man and he was a great friend and always had great stories. I mean, because literally he did. He, he was on the road before they came out. With Since we're talking about Hank Williams, I just learned a couple weeks ago where Castle Studios was and uh, where... A lot of that Hank stuff was recorded, and it's now a parking garage in downtown Nashville. Right. We seem to tear down a lot of things here in Nashville, but uh, you know anything about the history there at Castle Studios? Well, I know a little bit. Um, it was before they really had established a, any sort of studio scene here. You know, it was it was way before you know Harold Bradley and Owen Bradley went over and bought that rooming house that eventually became the Quonset Hut. That was the first one that was over there on what they call Music Row now. And at first, they were, I, I don't know, I, I, I may be getting it mixed up. The Castle recording, I think, was different. Originally, they were doing it up at WSM. And it might have been, and it was the same thing as the radio, you know, that was where they did it downtown. I read that the three engineers from WSM went over to the Hotel Tulane in the dining area and set up the studio there and just kind of rented that area out. And that's where they recorded lost highway, right? Cold, cold heart. Um, you went again, my son calls another man, daddy, just all these songs were recorded right there. That's all I really know about it. And somewhere along the line, the hotel Tulane got tore down and they put up a parking garage there. Well, sure. Because you need more parking and less significant historical places. But, you know, you don't think of it. It got torn down so long ago that it, 
it should have been significant because there were more than just Hank Williams recorded there. There was a lot of people that recorded there. But the thing about it is, is that you listen to some of those uh, Mother's Best transcriptions where he's live on the air at WSM. Well, he's not live because it's a transcription. They played it at 5.15 in the morning, you know, and he had a 15-minute show, and they would record a bunch of them. And it's basically the same technology as they had in the studio. I mean, the same mics, same engineers, like you just said. And straight to acetate, wasn't it? Yeah, straight. But it was like the big, really 16. It went on 16 RPM, you know, to, to make more time. That's what those transcriptions, that's why when you look at an old turntable, there's, there's a 16, 33, 45, and 78. And it's for those big, huge, they were a lot bigger than regular records. And they had just been thrown away in a dumpster and somebody saved them, you know. And now they're out, now they're out on, you know, Time Life has put them out. And you listen to that stuff, and sometimes it's, it sounds even better than the, than the studio recordings, quote-unquote, because it is the same technology. It's just for some reason you can hear, you know, a lot of people thought it was really nasally the way that, the way that he uh, sang, but really he had a nice baritone voice. Hank, and he's, he's still the king hillbilly. I don't care what you say. Even though they tore his house down to put up the Regions Bank on Music Row, even though it had been moved, at least they moved it the first time from Franklin Road up there. But then, you know, when I first moved to town, it's Hank Williams' house. It even said it out front, you know. See the music notes. Yeah, yeah whatever. For sale of the high speed. Well, you know, I, my record really wasn't about me that Quonset that was about the Quonset hut and I wanted to tell that story because that was the beginning of the recording industry in Nashville really I mean the castle that they had you know that wasn't really a studio I mean it was but it wasn't and uh they were afraid that the recording business was going to go to Texas because they were they're starting to record some stuff down in Texas and and they wanted it to be here in Nashville so that's when Owen Bradley and Harold Bradley got together some money and decided to put a studio in what used to be a boarding house in the basement of it. And so they started recording there, and it got a little more sophisticated sounds and everything. And in fact, that's where they recorded uh, Bebopalula was in the basement. That was one, one of the cuts that they did. And then in the, the mid-50s, uh, I, I can't remember what year they bought it and started recording there, but... A couple of years later, they decided that they wanted to get into the film and television business too, but they needed a sound stage. So they just ordered up an army issue Quonset hut and stuck it on the back of this house and connected it. And because they were being used to film Grand Ole Opry TV shows, you know, the, the, this guy named Ganaway filmed all these incredible three camera live performances of the Grand Ole Opry in Technicolor. You know, you see Carl Smith and Farron Young when they're, when they are, they're young, they're rocking, you know, incredible performances, just like the Grand Ole Opry, you know, unfortunately, Acuff thought it was bullshit. So he didn't do any of them. So we don't have Acuff on that, which is, a, it's a bummer, but, um, but they filmed it and they put up, you know, they put a barn scene up, you know, so it looked like the Grand Ole Opry. Well, that wood sounded really, really good. And so they started 
putting sessions in the Quonset hut part instead of, and so then they had two studios. They had the actually three. They had the upstairs uh, in the house and the basement, and then they had the, the big Quonset hut room. And pretty soon that was like the room that they recorded in, and they had it all dialed in because there's a sweet spot where the vocalists always stood that sounds different. That is for some reason it's a magic spot. It's just one of those things you can't explain. It's like a little hole that's that's perfect. Right. And they knew right where Bob Moore was supposed to be the bass player. And, you know, they had it all dialed in so you could make a live performance and everybody does it all at the same time. And some of the greatest music ever came out of that. And they eventually sold it to Columbia Records and it became the Columbia Records studio where, you know, there's a lot of things, you know, that's blonde on blonde. Uh, that, that wasn't at the Quonset hut though. He wanted, Bob wanted to do it at the Quonset hut, but he did it at the studio, the upstairs studio instead. But, um, you know, just because of the way that wood was in there, it it had such a unique sound. It was really fantastic and really high ceilings, you know, it was really curved. And, um, they, they kept recording in there for years and years till 1982. Uh, the John Anderson song swinging was the last thing that was cut at the Quonset hut before they closed it up and then they just used it for storage. And then it became the art department for, you know, Columbia Sony records. I mean, they, they kind of built another building around, they tore down the boarding house and they put, you know, a bigger other structure in front of it. You can only just see one corner of it now. And, um, you know, like when, when BR five, four, nine left Arista records and went over to Sony, it was the art department. Like you walk down to where, you know, people were had been recording and you know your life in your ears for country music and pop music and blues. You know everything was they did everything there. Uh, was now just you know a bunch of Dixie Chicks artwork and our artwork just kind of you know with a big table, but you could still stand in that spot where the vocalist stood, and it was a weird vortex that was just perfect. I mean, you could hear it. It, it was I, I can't explain. There's a certain resonance there. So, you know, I, I, that was the first time that I'd gotten to, to be in there, you know, and to, to hang out in there for a little while. And then, of course, you know, they closed all the labels. They're all in one building now. All the, there is no, there's just like one label, isn't there? I don't know. There, <laughs> wait, wait, there's two, Disney and the others. So then Belmont bought it. And Mike Kerb started to refurbish the studio. Um, and you know, the economy kind of tanked and it was going to cost a lot of money to put that nice wood back in there. So they, they kind of, they fixed it up and it is, you know, they put it back as a studio and I was the first one, I think country person to go in there and record again, you know, in conjunction with, uh, Belmont students and, uh, my good friend, the, the co-producer on all the, the first like four BR records, Michael Janice is a sound audio engineer professor at Belmont. And he was running the Kwanzaa. He, he kind of was over at Studio B for a while and got that kind of up and running. And, and now he's kind of headquartered out of there. And so I was going to make this classic country record. And I was telling him about it. He goes, well, why don't you come over to the Kwanzaa and do it? I'm like, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll do that. And then, you know, it kind of got rolling bigger and bigger and bigger. And, uh, it got to the point where I want to do it all live and I want to bring in some of the A-team guys that played there originally, like Bob Moore 
and Harold Bradley and Pig Robbins and Buddy Spiker, you know, to augment my band. And then I had Chris Scruggs come in. He was playing guitar and uh, Wes Langlois, he, he played he played on it too. So it was like my band and we just went out and played. I didn't even use headphones when I was singing the thing. And it was pretty stellar. And Bobby Bear came in and did a Carl Smith tune. They, they cut some of the Carl Smith tunes right there in, in that spot. So we did, we recorded Hey Joe and, and I didn't, I, I, I knew Bobby Bear because I went to see Jimmy Dickens one time do his nightclub act at the, at the Nashville Palace. And I got sat at a table with Carl Smith and Bobby Bear, and Carl had already know, knew me. And so that was our connection. Bobby Bear's my connection was, was with Carl. And we backed him up, I think, one time a long time ago at the Hall of Fame, too. We did Detroit City with him. And yeah, he, he's, he's just fantastic. What a great soul. And uh, anyway, so he came over and sang that with, and it was just, it was, it was spectacular. We actually did the, uh, I, did, I cut the Wabash Cannonball with uh, Old Crow Medicine Show, and we literally just stood in a circle and, and did that with students. It was during a class <laughs> because that was the only time the Old Crow guys could come in was on a certain day. It was before, you know, the weekend when we were going to be cutting everything. They came in like the Wednesday before and like students worked on that. And it was blowing their minds that you could do that without any overdubs or any, you know, that kind of stuff. Because that was, you know, we did, we did maybe one or two overdubs because Harold wanted to get a good six-string bass solo on Honky Tonk Hardwood Floor, and he went back and did that, and, you know, he rocks. He's the most recorded guitar player in the history of recorded music, and he played on my record. God bless him. <laughs> and we just, had a, we just had a big time that whole weekend of doing that. I felt like I was walking on air just because, of, you know, you're dealing with ghosts in that place. And you tap into that because it's a positive thing. It's not like poltergeist. You know, these ghosts have drugs. Come on. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I, I feel kind of blessed that we live in an area that has this much history. So I really enjoy getting to hear that stuff. Well, isn't that why you came down, Otis? It's because It's because this draws you down there because there's a certain weird vibration that causes, you know everybody's writing songs everybody's playing music that's why you come here and the more you tap into that the bigger it gets and it's just it gets bigger and bigger and bigger all the time and it's and if you tap into the right thing and think about the right things you know cool things will happen and and it's it's amazing that i you know i came down here to walk in the footsteps of hank williams and roy acuff you know why not? And then, then you get to, you know, hook up with the masters. You know, I became friends with Cowboy Jack Clement. He's he's one of the architects of rock and roll. You know, I, I got to go over to his house and hang out with him, go out and have lunch with him all the time. He tells you these incredible stories. But that's that's how you learn stuff. That's why you come down here. I want to hang out with those guys. I want to know what what they know. I want to write songs with these guys. You know, I think I've said it before on this show but when Amy and I first moved to Nashville about seven years ago we'd been here for about five days and you called me up and hey Otis there's this party tonight won't you come on over it's over by Peter Cooper's house so I go over and um, there's a band playing on this front porch here in East Nashville and uh, it's you Tim Carroll Cowboy Jack Peter Cooper 
W.S. Holland. W.S. Holland. It's a beautiful October night, you know, and this is happening on a porch. And we're like, you know, I think we made a pretty good move. You did, man. We had a good decision. <laughs> I'd like to thank everybody for listening in, and I'd like to thank Chuck for inviting me over to his house here in East Nashville. You can find out everything you need to know about Chuck at chuckmead.com. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to otisgibbs.com and you can pick up a CD, a t-shirt, you can download any record I've ever made, you can buy one of my photographic prints, you can buy one of Amy's records, you can buy one of Amy's children's books, But anything that you buy, we'll mail from our living room to yours, and we'll even put in a little thank you note. If you'd like to help out but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Leave a comment. Subscribe while you're there, and you'll get a brand new episode free every Wednesday. But if you enjoy this show, or you enjoy my music, or you enjoy Amy's music, please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Just send it to info at otisgibbs.com. I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.